Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Isn't worship wonderful? And the psalmist tells us as to put on a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. And I would be remiss if I did not share that I had a spirit of heaviness this week as we observed global events, as our hearts broke looking at the images and the stories coming out of Afghanistan. People clinging to aircraft wheels even in desperation to escape the evil that was descending upon their city. We know that even now we have thousands of Americans that are trapped with few options. We have missionaries and families that were caught off guard and were also unable to escape. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are in harm's way this morning as we speak. So please be praying with urgency and with intentionality for supernatural protection for these believers. We know that the Taliban has already sent letters and social media statements to the churches in Kabul, both above ground and underground, telling them that they know who they are and that they are coming to kill them. And indeed, that has already happened as of yesterday. It was last reported that this new regime is confiscating phones and is executing anyone found with a Bible app on that phone. As an Islamic state now under strict Sharia law, believers are going to suffer tremendously. And these tragic events, like all in human history, they raise the same questions and the same objections from the world. Indeed, they're questions that Christians struggle with and that we're forced to, when we're forced to witness atrocities like what we're seeing in Afghanistan. Where is God? And if He is so loving and so powerful, why allow this? If you're active in speaking with people at your work or in your family, you will encounter these questions. And we're commanded in Scripture, in 1 Peter, to be ready to give an answer. And we run headlong into what philosophers call the problem of evil. And they would state that the existence of these horrible things, the existence of groups like the Taliban, makes the existence of an all-loving and an all-powerful God impossible. And according to this philosophy, to have the power to stop evil and not do it means you cannot be good. It makes you complicit in the evil yourself if you allow it to continue. God cannot be as the Bible says He is if groups like the Taliban are allowed to do what they do. And we could do a ten-part series on dealing with the existence of evil in times like these, and barrels and barrels of ink have been spilt on the topic. For, for now, I just want to encourage you, and I want to equip you with a few things. Now, if you are completely familiar with the minor prophet Habakkuk, it's one of those parts of the Bibles that may not be well-worn for you, but in times like these, it should. See, if we read Habakkuk, we're going to see an amazing part of Scripture that records an extended conversation between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk is standing there in Jerusalem, and evil is running amok. It's completely unchecked, and God seems silent. How could God sit idly by as these atrocities and this sin runs rampant? Habakkuk is frustrated as he looks at the world around him. How many of us can relate to that? Habakkuk is left to question the goodness of God based on what he's seen in the world. And saints, if a prophet of God is left to face these frustrations, do not be dismayed that we're tempted with the same feelings. So to the question, where is God's justice against the evil that is rampant? Now, I won't ask you to turn to Habakkuk, so without some cheating in the index, I think we might be here for a while. So I'll put it up on the screen. 
Habakkuk 1 opens with the prophet questioning God. Habakkuk's complaint. He says, how long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed and there's no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that the justice has become perverted. Can you hear Habakkuk's heart here? God, where are you? Do you not see this? The wicked are running roughshod over the entire planet. And unspeakable atrocities are being perpetrated in 2021 as we speak. And you could stop it. Even here at home, it seems that evil has been unleashed morally and politically. So if he's loving, he's obviously not all powerful if he lets this happen. And even if he is all powerful and chooses not to stop this, then he's not all loving. One attribute or the other must fall, right? They both can't simultaneously be true, these philosophers claim. That's what you'll hear out there. That's what you'll hear. And in fact, one of our dear congregants was told this very thing by a neighbor just this week. This is what the world is thinking about. And in Habakkuk's, and in Habakkuk, God's seeming inaction is what frustrates him. But God's response to this frustrated prophet begins to shed light on just one reason why God seems to allow evil to rampage unchecked. So let's look at God's response, verses 5 to 11, the Lord's reply. And the Lord replied, look around at the nations, look and be amazed, for I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. Saints, pay attention to this. I am raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. They will march across the world and conquer other lands. They are notorious for their cruelty and they do whatever they like. Their horses are swifter than cheetahs and fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their charioteers charge from far away. Like eagles, they swoop down to devour their prey. Or they come all bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind, sweeping captives ahead of them like sand. They scoff at kings and princes and scorn all their fortresses. They simply pile ramps of earth against their walls and capture them. They sweep past like the wind and are gone, but they are deeply guilty. Saints, did we catch this? What is the Lord's response to the wickedness? I am raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. They'll march across the world and conquer other lands. They're notorious for their cruelty and do whatever they like. God's response to judge Israel is to raise up another violent and wicked and evil people to come and judge them. Does God use evil to accomplish his purposes? Yes, it's on clear display. The presence of evil does not negate God's power or his goodness. Now, I marveled at how much the swiftness and the cruelty of the Babylonians to conquer reminded me of the mere six days it took the Taliban to bring an entire country into subjection. It seemed to Habakkuk that God was allowing evil to remain unchecked. And now we see that God's response to this evil is to raise up and to allow the evil, wicked Babylonians to accomplish the evil that was in their hearts. 
to make war, to subjugate, to visit cruelty on a people. Now, to be clear, is God the author of sin? No. Does he cause people to sin? No. But does he remove his common restraining grace to allow people to exercise the wickedness in their own heart to accomplish his own purposes? Yes, he does. Saints, God uses evil for his purposes. He does not cause it. He does not author it. But he does allow for it. And he does use it. He will raise up an entire wicked army to accomplish his purposes. And as I've said before, God allows that which he hates to accomplish that which he loves. The rise of the Taliban and the pain that it is bringing, even to our fellow brothers and sisters over there, does not negate the loving and powerful attributes of God, saints. It confirms them. God will not hesitate to allow wickedness to accomplish his purposes. And hear this, dear saints. God controls evil. He did not create it, but he does control it. If something was outside of God's control, guess what? He would cease to be God. God did not create evil, but it does not operate outside of his control. That devil is on a leash. He raised up the Babylonians, a wicked people, to accomplish his good and perfect will. But saints, not only does he raise them up, but he puts the same army down. Jeremiah 51 verse 30, I'll read it for you. The earth trembles and writhes in pain. For everything the Lord has planned against Babylon stands unchanged. Babylon will be left desolate without a single inhabitant. Her mightiest warriors no longer fight. They stay in their barracks, their courage gone. They have become like women. The invaders have burned the houses and broken down the city gates. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Babylon is like wheat on a threshing floor about to be trampled. In just a little while, her harvest will begin. God raises up the wicked nation, the wicked army, and God puts it down the same. In fact, what was the evilest act of all human history? What was the greatest travesty of justice, the greatest wickedness ever perpetrated? The day Jesus Christ was murdered on a cross. A truly innocent man executed by evil men with violence and hatred in their hearts. What did God accomplish by allowing that evil? Our very salvation. Us being gathered here this morning was in fact facilitated by God allowing evil men to have their way. Think about that. That is just one of the many reasons, one of many, why we see events like Afghanistan. But one I want to encourage you with. The psalmist declares with all simplicity, the Lord reigns. Over all the earth, the Lord reigns. There is no higher truth. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we finished our two-part series that culminated with the execution of John the Baptist. The voice of one crying in the wilderness had finally been silenced by the violence that resided in the heart of a woman that was consumed with hatred. We saw the incestuous adultery between Herod and his niece Herodias, who hated, whose hatred for John the Baptist was so intense, she was even willing to expose her own daughter to the drunken gazes of sinful men. And we saw last week the callousing effect that continued and persistent sin has on a mind and a heart. 
And given the next time that we will see King Herod in the Gospels, he will be openly mocking Jesus in his palace. The effects of Herod's sin, the effects of Herodias' hatred and lust reverberate through history. The effects of their sin were not contained to themselves. Many suffered because of their choices, even beyond John the Baptist. And what we witnessed in the lives of Herod and Herodias was a giving over to a depraved mind. To have the spirit, to have the power and the voice of Elijah through John the Baptist speak truth to you over and over, calling you to repent both publicly and privately, continually. And they would not hear. And so they are given over to a depraved mind. A mind that will soon mock the Son of God in his own palace in only a short time. Now I pray that even as we opened our Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, with John the Baptist, as we looked at his life and his message and his mission, and finally his death, that you will know him better than you ever have. That we take with us his zeal and his boldness for truth. Certainly our days and years ahead for the church will most certainly require it. Well, today we're beginning not a new story per se, but we're in fact looking at a continuation of a story that began a month ago. That of Jesus sending out his 12 disciples. And you may recall that we pointed out the Mark and Sandwich that we were in. So you would recognize it as we worked through the first slice of bread. Now that first slice of bread was verse 7 through 13 as you look in your Bibles. Jesus sending out the 12. And the meat, which was the execution of John the Baptist in verse 14 through 29. And finally this morning we're going to rejoin the bread beginning at verse 30. And happily, we'll see that this completion of the Mark and Sandwich flows beautifully and is connected to our next major scene, which we will begin wading into this morning as well. Now, we'll read our text as always, but we'll include the first slice of the sandwich so that you can see how it kind of flows together. So our text for today is Mark 6, 30 through 34, but I'll first read where that text is picking up from. So how about verses 12 through 13? 12 through 13 we'll start with, and then we'll roll right into our verses 30 through 34, and you'll see how they flow together. So starting with Mark 6, 12 through 13, I'll read it. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Now roll right to verse 30. And the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. You see how that works? You see how those two are connected? And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. And the people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you abundantly for this text. Lord, as we are going to see your example Lord, as we are going to see the humanity of the disciples and the shepherding of the good shepherd. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would attend to your word this morning. Teach us what you would have us to know. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Well, one of the banes of existence for parents is a little place called Chuck E. Cheese. Kids love it and parents not so much. If you'll watch Elias, our youngest, when we first go into Chuck E. Cheese, his eyes are wide and he's almost torn with excitement on which game to run to first. It's almost like sensory overload. There's, there's so much to do and see and he wants to do it all first. Well, I feel like I had a bit of a connection with my son as this feeling as we approach this pericope of one of the most consequential and revealing miracles revealed and recorded in the New Testament. There are so many layers to this and so many points of application and doctrine. It's like walking into a Chuck E. Cheese for pastors. So I'm a little excited and I want to hit it all at once. Well, you'll have noticed the title, The Feeding of the 25,000. That is not a typo. Not a typo. We're accustomed to seeing Jesus feeding the what? 5,000. And as we'll, we will later see, this was counting only the men. The true number we'll see will have been about 25,000 people. And we need to see this scene if we're to be there in our mind's eye this morning. This story is one we see depicted in Hollywood many times and in movie scenes showing kind of just a few people sat down, gathered around Jesus. But that fails to capture the scene we'll culminate with. Jesus' feeding of the 25,000 is so consequential, it's only other event, the only other event besides the resurrection that are recorded in all four Gospels. And that tells us something. That tells us this is, this is, this was a big deal. Jesus did thousands of things that were not recorded. We know that from the end of John's Gospel. There was a lot to choose from, but only two events made all four Gospels. Second only to the resurrection. So this does matter. In this consequ it's consequential to the redemptive narrative of Scripture, as we'll see. It certainly is. So let us begin with our text. Verse 30. Verse 30. Like Chuck E. Cheese. And the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to Him all that they had done and taught. Well, as we said, this is really both the culmination of Jesus having sent out his 12 disciples and the beginning, the catalyst of the next miraculous scene. So first we see the apostles gathered together with Jesus. Now, this is notable because this is the only place in Scripture that Mark refers to the 12 as apostles. Remember, there were many who were called disciples. To be a disciple simply means that you're a student of someone. You, you followed someone. At one point, Jesus had over 70 of them, even more at some points. And the 12 disciples would indeed always be disciples. But a Rubicon has been crossed now. Having been given the power to heal and over demons that they exercised, this was the domain, not merely of a disciple, but as that of an apostle. Now, there are two senses in which we use the label apostle. In truth, apostle simply means one who is sent out. So in a generic sense, that title can be used quite liberally. And, and in fact, we see other players in the New Testament like Barnabas and Epaphroditus who are, who are called apostolic. But with them, we're talking about someone who is merely sent. That's not to be confused with the office of an apostle. This, was, this office was the domain exclusively of those who had walked and talked and been empowered by Jesus. When the twelve apostles passed, the office passed with them. Scripture is clear that to hold the office of an apostle, we needed to have witnessed the risen Christ. So as a note, as a side note, any movement today that seeks to restore this office of prophet or apostle, of which there are many, 
in certain hyper-charismatic circles, that should be categorically rejected. Any usage in the New Testament speaking of the office of apostle in Jude and Second Peter and Hebrews, it's all in past tense language. We have many who are sent, many who act in an apostolic way in their going, but the office of apostle is necessarily closed. So back to our text. They were gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. Can you just imagine this reunion? I remember when we used to go on mission trips to Belize and we would break out on into teams for the day and we, we'd do street evangelism and street preaching and I would hop on a bus in downtown Belize at one stop. I'd give the gospel to the entire bus and get off at the next stop. It was great. It was wonderful. And at the end of the day, we would all reconvene and everyone was alive and bubbling with all their experiences of the day, with the testimonies and the excitements. Now, can you imagine this reunion? They had been empowered to heal the sick and cast out demons. They had been rejected and embraced wherever they went. Their lives were both threatened and protected. They brought not an ounce of food with them. And let me tell you how the Lord provided for us every single day. Can you imagine this reunion? There's nothing sweeter than fellowshipping with other believers, is there? Talking of what God has done. That's the closest thing to heaven we have here on earth. That's what we will do. If you don't like church, saints, you won't like heaven. It's not what some might think. And as we move along in our scene of this joyful reunion, Jesus is the consummate shepherd. And he's looking at his 12 sheep and he sees their state. Verse 31. Verse 31. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. Well, a few things we need to see here. Recall that every disciple but Judas Iscariot were all from the area of Galilee. And this was precisely the area that the disciples went to minister. Meaning that this was not getting on an airplane and, and going to a foreign land for them and dropping their gospel load and, and heading home. This was in and out of where they grew up. Friends, family. Talk about the hardest ministry. You cannot disconnect yourself. They all know you and you know them. They would have gone to their hometowns, each one of them, the hardest place to minister. They tried to throw Jesus himself off of a cliff when he went to his hometown of Nazareth. So while this was an amazing and a joyful reunion, the disciples are spent. They are worn down in body, mind, and spirit. They left it all on the field and had to do it in the hardest possible area with those who know you best. And Jesus sees that. They're weary. But what else has just happened? Who else has just lost their life? John the Baptist. We know that John's disciples came and told Jesus of this execution. There would have been great sadness for this loss. So now we have grief piled on top of fatigue. And they've all come back and Yes, they're excited to share and, and be with one another. Yet they're so tired. And John the Baptist has been killed. And the intensity of the ministry is still such that it says, for there were many people coming and going and they didn't even have time to eat. We've seen that same description earlier in Mark, didn't we? That describes the atmosphere that was always around Jesus' ministry. But I can tell you that every pastor reads this verse differently 
than perhaps a congregant might. It's deeply personal and intense. Contrary to popular belief, just like the disciples here, pastors are human, flesh and blood. We have to eat and sleep. We carry the weight of our congregations and the concerns for their souls and their growth. We wake every day knowing that we will give an account to God for how we shepherded the flock that is among us. There is a burden to ministry that's difficult to describe to those not in ministry. So we can deeply relate with the disciples in this verse. Now, the latest stats show us the wisdom of Jesus to pull his disciples out of the fray for rest. These these statistics come from Soul Shepherding, which is a, a training center designed to help pastors. And they record that 75% of pastors report being extremely stressed or highly stressed. 90% work between 55 to 75 hours per week. 90% feel fatigued and worn out every week. 40% report a serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. 78% were forced to resign from their church. 63% at least twice. 91% have experienced some form of burnout in ministry, and 18% actually selected the option fried to a crisp right now. 100% of the 1,050 Reformed and Evangelical pastors surveyed had a colleague who had left the ministry because of burnout, church conflict, or moral failure. According to George Barna and the Fuller Institute in the year 2020, 1,500 pastors left the ministry every single month. Pastors must take a page from Jesus and the disciples' book on longevity in ministry. Now, of course, none of these pastors had a congregation like Harrison Hills. You're awesome. So the psalmist says, for he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As the old hymn reads, alone with God, the world forbidden. Alone with God, O blessed retreat. Alone with God and in him hidden to hold with him communion sweet. Pastors and congregants, renew your strength. Get alone with Jesus. That's what this verse means to us. That's just what we're seeing. Jesus is going to remove his disciples from the crowd to be alone with him. Now this, they would go to a desolate place here, but desolate doesn't mean barren here. It just means that there's less people. This happened around April, so the air, so the actual the area would have been quite beautiful and, and green. So that's good to know as we're visualizing the scene we're going to witness. Excuse me, verse thirty-two, verse thirty-two. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Well, just remember a little geography here that Capernaum was on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And if we see Luke's account of this story, we know that they set sail for an area around Bethsaida. An open area just outside the village is where this miracle would occur. Well, what do we know about Bethsaida? Well, we know both a lot and very little at the same time. It was a small village, maybe a few hundred people. We know that Peter and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel all grew up here. In fact, this is where they were when Jesus called them to ministry. So when these four got off the boat here, they were coming home. Now, we don't have any other evidence, archaeological or otherwise, that exists for Bethsaida. So that tells us that it was indeed small. Now, Bethsaida is on the northeastern part of the lake. So what we're talking about is not a full crossing of the lake. They're really just going from the northwest side over to the northeast side. Which makes verse 33 make perfect sense. Verse 33. And the people saw them going 
and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. Well, if you survey the distance and topography around the Sea of Galilee, around these parts, this is very plausible. Their boat would have been visible the entire time to those that were running on the shoreline. The crowd would have started in Capernaum. And they would have passed through multiple small villages on the way, picking up more and more people along the way. Right? So just imagine you're sitting on your porch and a hundred people go running by. What do you do? Hey, what's going on? Right? Well, Jesus is back. Jesus is back and he's heading this way. So more and more people will finally gather and they keep building steam till finally 25,000 people are scurrying along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Can you just picture that scene? But of course, as we always say, the heart of the matter, and in this case, the heart of the scene is a matter of the heart. Why are they coming? Like every crowd before, why are these people running in a frenzy toward where they think this boat will land? Are they there to repent? Are they there to turn to Christ as Messiah, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? No. We know that's not the case. We know that Jesus had no more than around six to seven hundred followers recorded when he ascended back to heaven. And here we are rushed by 25,000 people. Why are they here? They're here for physical healing. They're here to watch a miracle worker. They're here for the show. Perhaps this is our military Messiah here to deliver us from Rome. Nothing has changed, which mirrors an earlier sermon of ours. We titled it Into the Open Air, A Wonderful Tragedy. A Wonderful Tragedy. We could have titled this sermon the same. But this feeding, this miracle of feeding these 25,000 is so vast, so glorious, putting on such a display of Jesus' power and compassion on such a large scale, it is unequal at this point. In fact, if we were to turn the diamond to the Gospel of John, we would see that this miracle we're going to witness was so awe-inspiring that the people tried right then and there to make Jesus their king. Yet can I offer, had they listened they would have already known that Jesus was their king. He already was their Lord. People often with good intentions say that they made Jesus Lord of their life. Now we know what they mean, but of course no one makes Jesus Lord of their life. He is Lord of their life. Whether they acknowledge Him in repentance and faith or not, He is King. He is Lord. Nor do you accept Him into your heart or any other evangelical cliche that's not found in Scripture. You don't accept Jesus. You repent, and He accepts you. We dare not get it twisted. But we do so love the credit for our salvation, don't we? I made the decision. I accepted Him. I made Him Lord. No, no, and no. These people desired to make Jesus king because He could feed them from nothing. Running after Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Well, no doubt the disciples were able to enjoy some quiet, you know, a bit of respite on the lake as they're relaxing in the boat. Now, regardless of how much time they took getting over there, we know that the crowds were there to meet the boat when they arrived. Now, the straight line distance on the water was four miles. Sorry, this is my nerd coming out. Four miles around the perimeter of the shore was eight to nine miles. So a bit of quick algebra tells us these people were running. They were running to meet to beat this boat, depending on the winds. Now, this was probably not what the disciples had in mind when Jesus said, let's go to a secluded place by ourselves. 
And I love our final verse in our text today. Behold the heart of our Savior. In verse 34. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. And he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Have you ever gotten yourself all set up to do a relaxing activity? Maybe you've been purposing to read a book for a month and, and so finally you're taking the time, you're, you've set up your favorite chair, you've got your hot tea, all is quiet in the house, no one's going to be home for three hours. Just you and your book. Not two minutes in, four teenagers come bursting in the door, shattering my sanctuary of silence. They're there for the day. So much for my respite. Now this is precisely the situation for Jesus and the disciples. They were going away to a deserted place to be alone and to recover and to recoup. And as they're pulling up to their vacation spot, 25,000 teenagers barge in their door. To the disciples, crowds meant work. They meant work. But Jesus sees them with very different eyes. And we need the eyes of Jesus to really see the people around us. Our flesh wants to get back in the boat and find another place for quiet. All those people, all that work, the need never stops. What good is it doing anyway? Some might say. That's not what Jesus says. That's not what Jesus does. He saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them. He's not perturbed that their plans had been altered. He's there to do the will of the Father, to do what the Father would have him do. Now, how many disciples in the boat felt the same way? I bet more than a few in their hearts wanted to pull up anchor and keep on sailing. Look, at, right around this other bend, Jesus, there's no one there. It's quiet. But look at the good shepherd. He's moved with compassion for them. The word here means that Jesus was moved to the very core of his being for these people. There's no annoyance. There's not an ounce of selfishness. Quiet tea and book time has been completely shattered, and that's just fine. This is why Jesus was sent, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus and his disciples were spent and they were going to continue being spent more. I was immediately drawn to think about some of the great preachers of the past who had preached to their last of their strength. And one such man was George Whitfield. And it was written of George Whitfield that, quote, he never tired nor retired from preaching the gospel. Before Whitfield preached to a large crowd at Exeter, a bystander said to him, Sir, you are more fit to go to bed than to preach. And Whitfield answered, True, sir. And looking up, he said, Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but not of thy work. If I have not yet finished my course, let me go and speak for thee one more time in the fields. Seal thy truth and come home and die. And after preaching, he made his way to Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts, greatly in need of rest. One person actually reported from that meeting that he was coughing up blood as he was preaching. And when he arrived at the home of Jonathan Parsons, he was the pastor there at, at the Presbyterian Church, he told him that he was tired and needed to go to bed. 
But by that time, the street in front of the house had filled with many people begging to hear him preach. And even though he was physically spent, he couldn't resist an opportunity to preach the gospel once more. As he wearily made his way up the stairs, people crowded into the house, eagerly waiting to hear him again. And he stood on the landing halfway up the stairs. He had a candle in his hand. And heedless of time, he preached until the candle flickered and went out. And he turned around, he retired to his bed, finding it hard to breathe. He had very bad asthma. And he continued to struggle throughout the night. Now about two o'clock in the morning, Richard Smith brought him some cider and said to him that he shouldn't preach so often. And Whitfield replied, I'd rather wear out than rust out. And by morning, he had breathed his last. Well, here in a field outside Bethsaida, Jesus and his disciples, though still weary and worn, will spend and be spent for the gospel. Because, back to our text, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Sheep without a shepherd die. Sheep without a shepherd are waiting to be devoured. Again, we could do an entire series on why we are called sheep. And while I have little sheep up in my office there, they're very cute. Being called a sheep is not a compliment. Sheep can't feed themselves. They can't take care of themselves. They can't clean themselves even. If they fall over on their backs, they can't even flip back over onto their feet on their own. They can't search out water. They can't protect themselves. Nothing. All of these things they need the shepherd for. And our walk as Christians is that of complete dependency. Saints, we are gloriously and we are wonderfully dependent. Abandon all independent American machismo at the narrow gate of walking with Christ. We cannot do it on our own. We need the great shepherd. And finally, it says that he began to teach them many things. Why do this? Why do this? As we'll cover more next week, these people are not going to turn and repent. And we know for certain that Bethsaida will not repent. We'll cover that later in Luke. So why lavish this goodness upon them? Feeding them and teaching them. Some of this is indeed a, a salvific a grace being bestowed on them, meaning that some will come to salvation in repentance and faith through this. But much of this goodness that we're seeing is what's called common grace. Common grace is lavished on all peoples everywhere. The lost can enjoy a sunset. The lost can be filled with awe and wonder at the Grand Canyon. The lost can feel the love of their children. They can enjoy good food and experience a wonderful marriage and love. The lost can do all these things because of the common grace of God. It's lavished on all of us equally that we might know his kindness and his compassion. That's who he is. And here on this shore, he will not discriminate on who will receive his blessing of healing and of food and even of teaching. This is a demonstration of common grace. It's an attribute of God and of our Savior. Next week, we will see this manifest as we continue the story of one of the greatest miracles of all time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach this awe-inspiring miracle, 
Lord, we are indeed left in wonder. Lord, we are left in conviction. Lord, at our own hesitancy, in our own work ethic, in our own desires in the gospel. Lord, you set aside all of it for the sake of the gospel. Lord, you are the good shepherd. You shepherd us wisely and with tenderness. And oh, Lord, you're long-suffering toward us. Lord, as we dive deeper into this great miracle next week, we ask that you would begin preparing our hearts to receive all the application and all the truth contained therein. We love you, Heavenly Father. We ask that you would watch over us this week, both in safety, to guard our hearts and minds, until we meet again in Jesus' name. Amen.